Greetings, fellow Wordlings, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of And Another Thing with Dave, seeking the truth and exposing the lies. I'm your host, Dave Smith. All right, let's get into it. Greetings, fellow Earthlings. This is Dave with And Another Thing with Dave coming at you with a podcast about Iran, a little background about Iran. It's all in the news. You're getting all this hype from the lame stream media about what's going on now. But this is, this has a long history. We have been fucking with Iran since 1953. So all the current back and forth means nothing without the context of history. So what I want to help people uh, appreciate is a little bit of the history here. So I've got some, some clips that I want to share with you. So back in 1953... Um, Iran had a thriving democracy. Democracy. You know, they had a fair election, democratically elected, uh, you know, fairly socialist leader, meaning democratic socialist. He decided he did not like the arrangements that had been made with basically you know, England controlling their oil, and he wanted to nationalize their oil so that Iran could benefit from their massive oil reserves. Well, guess what? The West did not like that. The Anglo-Iranian oil company, later to become BP. So here's a clip from um, a uh, video I got from thepresident.com on YouTube, and it's 1953, U.S. overthrows Iran's democracy and installs pro-U.S. dictator. This was the year that the U.S. overthrew Iran's democracy and installed the Shah, a pro-U.S. dictator. In 1951, Dr. Mohammad Mossadegh was the first elected official who was appointed as prime minister of Iran by popular demand. He saw that the wealth needed to build Iran was leaving the country because over the past 50 years, its vast oil reserves were under British control at the hands of the Anglo-Iranian oil company, later to become BP or British Petroleum. So Mozadegh became hugely popular for nationalizing the oil industry and taking back the oil. Hugely popular at home, but quite unpopular with the British government. Britain took Iran to the world court over the matter and lost. They tried to hit Iran's economy by blockading the Gulf and halting trade. They tried to convince the U.S. to assist with regime change, but then-President Truman was not interested. However, when U.S. President Eisenhower took office in 1953, 
Britain was able to persuade him under the Cold War pretext that Mossadegh relied on Iran's Communist Party for power. The newly formed CIA was sent to engineer a coup, codenamed Operation Ajax. Iran's monarch, the Shah, returned to power. Now, I just want to interject here. Can you imagine? So we paint Iran out to be this evil blah, 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 blah. Just like we do all the countries before we decimate them. Um, and I just might add that none of those countries are doing better after we decimated them. None. Name a single country that's doing better. Um, but that's not the point. So Unbelievable. But can you imagine if you reverse the script, flip the script on this, right? Like, you know... Say Iran wants our oil from the U.S. They want to profit. Iranian oil companies want to profit off of the U.S. oil. That's basically the reverse, right? And then the Iranian government pressures and is willing to go to war and overthrow the government? To get their oil companies in? I mean, that's basically what happened. The U.S. companies, U.S. oil companies. Now, this is how powerful the oil companies are. They can manipulate world governments to go to war so that they can gain more of this resource so that they can continue to profit. Meanwhile, in a war... Who profits off of both sides? Well, a bank and an oil company. Because, you know, how much oil does it cost to go to, does it take to go to war? Unbelievable. Um, as a matter of fact, side note, without mobile oil and Prescott Bush of mobile oil, George Bush Sr.'s father, the Nazi war machine would come to a screeching halt. But mobile oil was providing the Nazis with oil. So I, I just wanted to interject that, you know. Um, as you listen to this, imagine if it was reversed. That, you know, that Iran was doing that to us. How would we react? How would we feel? So just, just hold on to that. He had previously been weakened by the new parliament, a short democratic experiment designed to limit his powers. After 1953, he returned fully backed by his power, and the oil was soon flowing under control of Britain, America, the Netherlands, and France. The Shah became increasingly arrogant, opulent, and autocratic over his 25-year rule. He instilled fear in the population with a secret police known as Savak, created by the American CIA and Israeli Mossad that tortured and imprisoned those who dared to dissent. So, did you catch that? The CIA and the Mossad of Israel trained these secret police in Iran and taught them tact horrible tactics, terrorist tactics, basically. So the CIA and the Mossad trained Iran in how to be horrible. Are you catching this? So everything, you know, 
it's that old adage. If you're pointing a finger at somebody, well, guess what? There's three, three fingers pointing back at you. Oh, my God. Here we're claiming they're savages. Well, pff, we trained them. He crushed all political opposition. Troops were sent to massacre demonstrators. He pushed a white revolution to modernize and westernize the country, giving women the right to vote and other reforms. But ultimately, he served the elites and created a huge economic gap for the poor masses. Powerful religious leaders saw that he was forcibly trying to rid Iran of Islam in a country... Created a huge economic gap. Huh. Does that sound familiar to what's going on in the U.S. right now at all? I don't know, a little bit. ...that was 90% Muslim. One of the Shah's leading critics, Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, was arrested and imprisoned for 18 months. After his release in 1964, Khomeini was sent into exile for 14 years. From abroad, he continued his anti-U.S., anti-Shah campaign through sermons on cassette tapes that made their way back into Iran and circulated as people copied and shared them. By the end of the 1970s, things had gotten so bad that major protests and the violence that followed were becoming a regular occurrence. Let me just break this down. So the Ayatollah Khomeini, in response to what was to the U.S. interference in their country, he developed anti-U.S. sentiment, and he became a rock star. We made him a rock star. By being douchebags, we made him a rock star, right? Otherwise, this guy would have been a total, like, sidelined extremist, right? But no. Now people are listening to this crazy fucking nutbag. Why? Because we keep fucking with them. We overthrew their government. So now, his whole fuck the West, fuck the U.S., fuck the imperialism, now that's resonating with people. Like, oh my God. History is everything. You gotta know the history. Otherwise, you just get duped by the nightly news. But no, this is, oh my God, we started this. So, let's continue. The Shah declared martial law and banned demonstrations. This resulted in a huge protest and a general strike that shut down the economy. Soon over two million people flooded a public square in Tehran, demanding to remove the Shah and for Khomeini to return. And that is exactly what happened. One important thing to note is that the CIA orchestrated the 1953 coup out of the very same American embassy in Tehran that was later at the site of the hostage crisis, right after the Shah was overthrown by popular revolution in 1979. The students were convinced that once again, the U.S. had plans to overthrow their revolution. In fact, U.S. President Carter did send a NATO general to instigate a military coup, but it failed. Iran and the U.S. had an extradition treaty in force that obligated the Carter administration to return the Shah to Iran as an indicted criminal. The students had four demands. Return the Shah to Iran for trial. He had been accepted into America for medical treatment. Return the Shah's wealth to the Iranian people. A promise from the U.S. not to interfere in Iran's affairs in the future and an apology and admission of guilt by the U.S. for its past actions in Iran. 
The apology never came, but 20 years later, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright did acknowledge the U.S. role in Mossadegh's overthrow. So Khomeini took power in 1979 and instituted a government under Islamic law. Within a year of the revolution, Saddam Hussein invaded Iran without provocation, seeking control of Iran's oil-rich Khuzestan region and key oil-shipping waterways. So this is when we armed Iraq to go to war. We propped up Saddam Hussein. He was our puppet. Um, and this is a pattern that has been repeated over and over again. We picked this a fascist oppressive uh, authoritarian puppet, arm them to the teeth, and then, what do you know, 20 years later, they become a problem. Oh, God. <laughs> Imagine that. So, here we are arming Saddam Hussein. The weapons of mass destruction that George Bush was talking about, we knew that they had weapons of mass destruction. Why? Because we had the receipts for them. We sold them to them, right? But we also knew that they had had eliminated their stockpiles. They'd gotten rid of them because they did not want to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with us. So, anyway, just a little side note. The resulting Iran-Iraq War from 1980 to 1988 was the longest and one of the most devastating conventional wars of the century. At least half a million Iranians were killed. This war further cemented resentment of the U.S. government, as they were playing both sides. On one hand, they were supporting Iraq, providing money, technology, and intelligence, including satellite photography, to help Iraqi bombing raids. The U.S. helped provide Saddam Hussein with weapons by giving him agricultural credits and pressuring Gulf states to give him billions in loans so he could buy weapons from Western Europe, China, and Russia. The U.S. Department of Commerce issued licenses to export materials for Iraq's weapons of mass destruction program. The U.S. continued its support even after learning that Iraq was using chemical weapons against Iran, not to mention against its own citizens, to stop an uprising of Kurdish separatists. But the imperialist tradition also called for maintaining regional balance of power, so the U.S. also armed Iran not letting any one regional power get secure enough to dominate or to ally with its neighbors to challenge U.S. hegemony. In this case, it came in the form of the Iran-Contra scandal. Okay, now I gotta cut in here. This is the classic, classic elite imperialist divide-and-conquer mentality brought into play. What do you do? You arm both sides. Because you want, you want to go to war with both of them. So what better than to have them go to war with each other and you supply them with weapons? Help them kill each other. Then whichever one you're going to fight later has already been, you know, diminished. Oh my God. Now we get into the Iran-Contra scandal. And I'm going to do a whole nother podcast on this because this is out of control. But the synopsis of the Iran-Contra scandal, it doesn't, it doesn't 
the name doesn't break down what it is. Iran-Contra scandal. So what is it? Iran, okay, Congress illegally sold weapons to Iran so that they could fight against Iraq. Or, uh, um, I'm sorry, the CIA illegally sold weapons to Iran. Congress voted against that directly. So the CIA was busted just full on. How did they get the money to buy the weapons? Oh, that's a whole nother thing. They were also um, funding this, you know, rebel group, rebel group opposing a democratically elected government in Nicaragua. So the rebel group was called the Contras. So the CIA was supporting the Contras and Iran. How were they going to do that? Congress voted no. We're not going to support this. These are two illegal wars. We're not involved. No. Zero support from the public. How did the CIA achieve this? Oh, they smuggled coke into the U.S. Yeah. So, they smuggled plane loads. 3.1 tons per plane of cocaine into the U.S., into Mena, Arkansas. Enter Bill Clinton, was the governor of Arkansas at that time. So Bill Clinton and George Bush made an arrangement where they were going to do this covert operation, Arkansas being the most remote state in the country. Mena, Arkansas, the most remote airport in the country. So perfect, right? Barry Seals. You can you can look all these names up. I've got uh I've got videos about this on my website, on on my uh, podcast on YouTube, and another thing with Dave on YouTube. You can check that out. Um, many many videos about this on YouTube. Um, drugs, Mena, Arkansas. Anyway, Clinton was working with Bush, who was working with the CIA. So they were smuggling coke in from South America, working with Manuel Noriega through Panama. We would stop and refuel at his airstrips. That's why we lit up Panama, killed 20,000 peasants to get Manuel Noriega, and then locked him up. I think he's in Guantanamo. He'll never see the light of day. You'll never hear him testify. Why? Because he was the airstrip that, you know, the coke planes and gun planes refueled at. So on the way up from South America, they were full of cocaine, Central and South America, full of cocaine. They would land in Mena, Arkansas, and then uh, enter Freeway Ricky Ross, and the creation of crack cocaine. So you can credit George Bush Sr. and Bill Clinton with the crack epidemic. Because they these neocon bastards who think they have a ver, you know, their version of the way the world should be is the way it should be. So they're willing to do anything. Smuggling drugs, shutting down our, our, our nationwide defense system 
to fly plane loads of cocaine into the country. So putting us at terrorist risk for their greedy ass plan. So either they're profiting from it personally or they just have this God complex where they think they know the way the world should be. Either way, fuck these people. So that's who we're dealing with here. So that's the Iran-Contra scandal. And they got outed. They were busted. Oliver North, a general, testified. Didn't do any time. I was just following orders. I was just following orders. They raided a, uh, a warehouse in south-central Los Angeles that had 22 tons of cocaine in it, and it was being guarded by military MPs. So our tax dollars at work guarding a warehouse full of 22 tons of coke in the middle of the peak of the crack epidemic. That's your government. Anyway. That's Iran-Contra scandal. U.S. President Reagan needed money to fund an unjustified war against Nicaragua, but was forbidden to do so by Congress. So U.S. arms were illegally sold to Iran through Israel and South Africa, and the proceeds went to the Nicaraguan Contras. This allowed Reagan to get around Congress to support a campaign of kidnap, rape, torture, and murder for which the U.S. was convicted by the World Court for unlawful use of force. In other words, state-sponsored international terrorism. The ruling was ignored. Khomeini died in 1989, shortly after the war ended. He promised democracy, but essentially had become the next dictator. Although he improved literacy and much-needed health care for the masses, he also imposed censorship, violently crushed political dissent, and attacked women's rights. Instead of the Savak, the people now had the Revolutionary Guard to fear. Since then, Iran has been an oppressive theocracy. Khomeini was replaced by Khomeini, who remains supreme leader to this day. As a test of fairness, we might imagine that Iran invaded and occupied Canada and Mexico, and had aircraft carriers sitting in the Caribbean. Imagine then if Iran had the power to label the U.S. the axis of evil and cut us off from the rest of the world, and then threatened to attack us if we didn't stop generating nuclear power. What if Iran had overthrown the U.S. government 50 years ago and installed a dictator friendly to Iranian interests, who kept it in power for 25 years? At that point, imagine that Christian fundamentalists, who currently represent about a third of the U.S., took power and began ruling under church law, followed by an unprovoked invasion by Canada, supported by Iran and ignored by the UN, in which it nearly destroyed the US. Would it be possible to imagine Iran as liberators? Would Iran be justified in attacking if the US government helped Christian fundamentalists in Canada to take up resistance? Would it be justified to hate and fear all Christians because of the ones that took and abused power in this context? This is not about good guys and bad guys. Both the American and Iranian governments are working against the interests of the people. But the deadly game of chicken was begun by the U.S. And the U.S. has the power to... So you get... You, you get... You get it. You get it. Like, this was orchestrated by the CIA 
to just stir up shit. And, uh, you know, people say, well, why would we want to, you know, what's the goal? What's the goal? Why would we do that? Well, we wouldn't. We wouldn't because we're sane people. But the psychopaths that are the deep state, the CIA, the NSA, yada, 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 they want to create anarchy so that they can then justify sending troops over there to quell the anarchy. It's the oldest trick in the book, right? Create a problem, then offer the solution. It's some old gangster shit. It's strong-arming. It's evil corruption. And we're doing it on a level that the world has never seen. Right? We're fighting terrorism? Are we? Are we handing out like school books and Bibles? No. The number two gross national, the number two product of the United States is weapon sales. The number two moneymaker from the United States is selling weapons. So, so I thought that was fantastic when I first saw that little clip. You know, really opened my eyes. You know, it, it made everything make sense. Oh, shit. Now, wonder they have an authoritarian government. We overthrew their government. And so they, you know, as the pendulum swings one way, it'll swing equally back the other way. So they were a democracy. We overthrew them. Then some guy who speaks evil of capitalism, Westerners, and yada, yada, yada. Extreme militant religious fuck. Crazy bastard by anybody's, you know, any sane person's um, assessment. Takes power. But in direct response to them just having gone through this horrible atrocity. You know, then what happens? Then we support Iraq and give Iraq chemical weapons to use against them. And I read an article that a million people suffered from the consequences in Iran. A million people suffered from the consequences of chemical weapons being used. Um, you know, here's a clip from Jimmy Dore. Um, got this guy, Michael Morell. He's a, a former acting director of the CIA. So, total piece of shit. Lying, pe professional lying piece of shit. But here he is. Um, here's Jimmy Dore outing him. And this is pretty interesting. Taking responsibility. That's the overt war. Hopefully that can de-escalate now. But that doesn't mean the covert war is over. In fact, I think there... So the overt, he's, he's saying, he thinks it's over, 1-1. One, one. The, over, the, the overt war, the one out in the open, is over. We hit them, they hit us back. But he's saying there's still another covert... Now, this is what we talked about. Even if we come to peace with Iran, 
the way that the Trump administration did this attack was to not only piss off people inside of Iran, but Shia Muslims all over the Shia Muslim world. So even though you can make a deal and have peace with Iran proper, there's going to be Shias all over the region who are, aren't going to be in that deal, who still want to strike back at the United States because uh, Soleimani was seen as their, a hero of theirs for saving them from the ravages of ISIS, saving Iran and, and other places from stuff like happened in Syria and happened in Libya, fighting against. So that's uh, so now he's going to talk about that. There are two things we need to think about here. One is still down the road at some point, an assassination of a senior U.S. official somewhere in the world. It could be months from now to, to, to get revenge. And then two. Now imagine that. Imagine they take out one of our generals anywhere. Who knows? In Iraq or in Syria, in Libya or any of the other 80,000 countries where we have. So that's exactly what I'm talking about. Where we the deep state, the CIA, is intentionally creating chaos so that we can then justify engaging to quell the chaos. So it's extremists with our, within our own government and Israel that are really pushing this. And... Um, Thank God a few people see through it. Thank God Jimmy Dore is rocking this. And, uh, but I want to give you a little more historical context. So I've got, you know, I've got some clips here for you. We'll come back to Jimmy Dore because I love Jimmy Dore. Um, but uh, so here is a clip with... Uh, Garland Nixon, this is uh, Lee Camp on Redacted Tonight on RT. It's funny that uh, you get some of the best news about what's really going on in the U.S. on RT, Russia Today. <laughs> you know, maybe they just figured, you know, we can help them self-implode. <laughs> Let's just fund like a real news program. And show what's actually going on and how their country is eating itself. Wow. If that's their logic, it was pretty brilliant. Anyway, this is Lee Camp from Redacted Tonight. Um, talking about the deep state and the ruling elite. So, sorry about that little glitch there. Uh, my phone was telling me that it had stopped recording, but I think we're all good. So, Garland Nixon just nailed it right there. I, I'm going to have to go take a list, listen to him on the fault line. Uh, that's on FM radio, I believe. Um, wow! Did he just call it or what? So, the president is controlling this because it's been consistent policy through three presidents now. And, and what is it? It's the deep state run by the elite of the world... And, you know, and that intersects with the oil industries of the world seizing control of the areas that harbor the most resources. So, you know, if you think I'm sounding a little bit uh, 
a little bit uh, paranoid there. Let's listen to Eisenhower here talking about, this is from the National Archives, talking about the threat of the military-industrial complex. I come to you with a message of leave-taking and farewell. This speech did not get very much attention. When a new president is coming to power, as John Kennedy was, the spotlight was not on Dwight Eisenhower. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. There was a feeling at the time that this must have been written by some speechwriter who just sneaked into the speech. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. Three months ago, uh, we got contacted by a family up in Minnesota saying that we have documents from Malcolm Ruth. He was responsible in, in part for drafting the military-industrial complex speech. These new papers give us written evidence that this was not just some caprice of Eisenhower's or something by some speechwriter. You see the evolution of his speech from, from May 1959 to uh, 1961. He wanted to give this speech for a long time, two years. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. There was one person in Dwight Eisenhower's life whom he really confided almost everything to, and that was his brother Milton. There's one particular document where the speechwriters had already drafted their version of this speech, only to see uh, Milton come along and totally revamp what had already been, been written. When Milton Eisenhower was uh, taking notes and writing things on the drafts of these speeches, the speechwriters knew that it wasn't Milton talking, it was Ike. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. He would see magazines with advertisements for some you know, new warplane or some bomb and he got so angry he'd take the magazine and throw it into the fireplace of the Oval Office because he felt that defense spending should not be something that would be encouraged by companies who are seeking commercial gain. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. There is an interesting document that shows that the farewell speech would be made to Congress. But yet, President Eisenhower decided, no, he was going to address the people. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. One test of how well a president speaks is how long the speech lives. Here we are 50 years later, we're still talking about this speech. Now, on Friday noon, I am to become a private citizen. I am proud to do so. I look forward to it. Thank you, and good night. So, wow, there's a president as he's going out of office given the bird to the military-industrial complex and warning all of us about it. Right? Then I want to play a couple things for you here. So here's <clears throat> General Wesley Clark. I think he was like a four-star general. Anyway, he's speaking about 
a U.S. plan, the deep state, CIA, plan to invade and destroy seven countries in five years. Now, what's crazy about this is that we have fucked up all those countries except for Iran. So, check this out. This is General Wesley Clark with Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! I interviewed General Clark on Tuesday at the 92nd Street Y in New York. Now, let's talk about Iran. You have a whole website devoted to stopping war. www.stopiranwar.com Do yeah. you see um, a replay of what happened in the lead-up to the war with Iraq? The allegations of the weapons of mass destruction, the media leaping on to the bandwagon. Well, in a way, but, 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 it's, but you know, history doesn't repeat itself exactly twice. What I did warn about when I testified in front of Congress in 2002, I said, if you want to worry about a state, it shouldn't be Iraq, it should be Iran. But this government, our administration, wanted to worry about Iraq, not Iran. I, I knew why, because I'd been through the Pentagon right after 9-11. About 10 days after 9-11, I went through the Pentagon and I saw Secretary Rumsfeld and, and Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz. I went downstairs just to say hello to some of the people on the Joint Staff who used, used to work for me. And one of the generals called me and he said, sir, you got to come in. You got to come in and talk to me a second. I said, well, you're too busy. He said, no, no. He says, we've made the decision we're going to war with Iraq. This was on or about the 20th of September. I said, we're going to war with Iraq, why? He said, I don't know. He now, said, why the fuck are those people laughing? That's crazy, so, why are those people uh, I laughing? I said, well, did they find some information collect connecting Saddam to Al-Qaeda? He said, no, no, he says, there's nothing new that way. They just made the decision to go to war with I got to stop that. Like, that's disgusting. Why are we going to war with Iraq? I don't know. And people in the audience laugh? Like, what's funny about that? We're going to go bomb women, children, innocent civilians, grandmothers, grandfathers, schoolyards and churches. And that's... What in the hell is funny about that? We've been brainwashed into being a warring culture. With Iraq, he said, I guess it's like we don't know what to do about terrorists, but we've got a good military and we can take down governments. And um, he said, I guess if, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem has to look like a nail. Now, this is some toolhead... Jarhead military guy saying, well, I, I don't know. I, I, Jesus, I guess 
it's just because we, you know, we don't know what to do, but, uh, you know, God, we'll, we could take down governments. That's the whole plan is to take down governments, to take down governments that don't have U.S. corporations in them so that our corporations can profit from them. This has been going on for a hundred years. Are you kidding me? And even Wesley Clark doesn't even talk about this. He doesn't mention, you know, oh, you know, Central America, you know, United Fruit Company raped all of Central and South America. Land for pennies on the dollar, monocropping the hell out of it. That's why there was like a grape boycott in the 1970s um just just this brutal like corporate takeover of everything american companies going in and you know with their with literally with their own armies armed soldiers shell oil has their own army to protect their they're, they're, you know, outlying resources. They're, meaning their oil and gas plants in other countries. Because those people don't fucking want them there. That's their oil and gas. But Shell made some deal with some corrupt asshole that they bought out. So now the, the, the citizens of Nigeria are getting sold down the river, so guess what? They show up with guns. Well, guess what? Shell has better guns because Shell has more money. <laughs> so that's how it's working. Anyway, back to General Wesley Clark. So I came back to see him a few weeks later, and by that time we were bombing in Afghanistan. I said, are we still going to war with Iraq? And he said, oh, it's worse than that. He said, he reached over on his desk, he picked up a piece of paper, he said, I just... Now this, this is important, and everybody needs to hear this. You need to share this with everybody you know. Because what he's talking about here is, four weeks after 9-11, the Pentagon already had plans to invade Iraq... Afghanistan, well, he's going he's gonna to tell you right here. Seven countries. Well, six. We haven't invaded Iraq, yeah, Iran yet. He said, I just got this down from upstairs, meaning the Secretary of Defense's office today, and he said, this is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. I said, is it classified? He said, yes, sir. I said, <laughs> I said, well, don't show it to me. And I saw him a year or so ago, and I said, you remember that? He said, sir, I didn't show you that memo. I didn't show it to you. I'm sorry, what did you say his name was? <laughs> Amy Goodman digging for it. I'm not yeah. I'll give you his name. So go through the countries Bastard, again. Give his name up. Well, starting with Iraq, then Syria and Lebanon, then Libya, then Somalia and Sudan, and then back to Iran. And the administration so. has stubbornly refused to 
talk with. So all of those countries have been bombed. They didn't mention Afghanistan. All those countries, major bombing campaigns, government overthrow. Libya. So Omar Gaddafi in Libya was getting ready to introduce what's called the gold dinar. Libya has massive gold reserves. They were going to only trade oil in gold. They wanted all of Africa to do the same. Oh my God, the U.S. cannot have that. So look up, if if you're not aware of the petrodollar, look up the petrodollar. It's this arrangement that we made, the U.S. strong-armed, after World War II, where all oil would be bought in U.S. dollars. Right? So, if if you're Russian and you want to buy oil, you got to exchange your currency into U.S. dollars, which sometimes you lose money doing just that. Then you can buy the oil. So, Nobody wants to do this. This is an outdated policy. I don't know how we got away with it in the first place, other than threatening to nuke people. But uh, it's crazy town, and we're still getting away with it. Um, But not for long. So, anyway, back to General Wesley Clark. Iran about their perception. In part because they don't want to pay the price with their domestic, our U.S. domestic political base, the right, right-wing right base, but also because they don't want to legitimate a government that they've been trying to overthrow. If you were Iran, you'd probably believe that you were mostly already at war with the United States anyway, since we've asserted that their government needs regime change. So... Uh, and we've asked Congress to appropriate $75 million to do it, and we are supporting terrorist groups, apparently, who are infiltrating and blowing up things inside Iraq, Iran. And if we're not doing it, let's put it this way, we're probably cognizant of it and encouraging it. So it's... Now, here's an ex-general saying that we are either doing terrorist acts inside Iran or we're paying somebody to do it or we're encouraging it and turning our our heads to the fact that it's happening. So, that, unbelievable, man. Unbelievable. So, (laughs) Man, I I just, beyond words. It's not surprising that we're moving to a point of confrontation crisis with Iran. My point on this is not that the Iranians are good guys, they're not, but that you shouldn't use force except as a last, last, last resort. There is a military option, but it's a bad one. 
I wanted to get your response to Seymour Hersh's piece in the New Yorker to two key points um, this week. Reporting the Pentagon's established a special planning group within the office of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to plan a bombing attack on Iran. Um, that this is coming as the Bush administration and Saudi Arabia are pumping money for covert operations into many areas of the Middle East, including Lebanon, Syria, and Iran, in an effort to strengthen Saudi-supported Sunni Islam groups and weaken Iranian-backed Shias. Some of the covert money has been given to jihadist groups in Lebanon with ties to Al-Qaeda. Fighting the Shias by funding with Prince Bandar um, and then with U.S. money not approved by Congress, funding the Sunnis connected to Al-Qaeda. Well, I don't have any direct information to confirm it or deny it. It, it. It's certainly plausible. The Saudis have taken a more active role. You know, the, the Saudis... Um, you were just have, in Saudi Arabia. Hmm? You just came back from Saudi Arabia. Yeah, well, Arabia. the Saudis have basically recognized that they have an enormous stake in the outcome in Iraq, and they don't particularly trust the judgment of the United States in this area. We haven't exactly proved our competence in Iraq. Do you think that President Bush should be impeached? All right, so phenomenal, phenomenal. Amy asked some great questions, and General Leslie Clark, he doesn't go out on any limbs, but, you know, breaks down what he knows. Um... So unbelievable. So then do do we trust? Do we trust the deep state? Do we trust him? Here's Bush speaking at a uh, black tie dinner for television for the Television and Radio Correspondents Association. Now he entered to a standing ovation. This is after the WMD thing had been blown out of the water. So he's a known war criminal. And this is him in front of the television and radio correspondence association. Unbelievable. <laughs> Those weapons of mass destruction got to be somewhere. <laughs> As you can tell from the look on Andy Card's face, we've become a little concerned about the vice president lately. <laughs> Whenever you ask him a question, he replies, let's see what my little friend says. <laughs> but we get along well. Here I am saying, Dick, if the Hunan Palace doesn't get lunch here in four minutes, we're going out. Nope, no weapons over there. <laughs> Unbelievable. 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 
And then I got one other clip Maybe for I'm you here. here. <laughs> got one other clip for you here of uh, Pompeo talking about being the ex-director of the CIA and how he's a masterful liar. So why the fuck would we believe the word this guy has to say now? was the CIA director. We lied, we cheated, we steal, stole. It's, it was like, we, we, had, we had entire, we had entire training courses. Uh, it, uh, it, it, it reminds you of the, uh, let's hear uh, that again. Of, I, I was the CIA director. We lied, we cheated, we steal, stole. It's it like, we, we had, we had entire, we had entire training courses. Uh, it, uh, it, it, it reminds you of the uh, uh, the glory of the American experiment. I, I was the wow. Wow. So there he is speaking to, I think that was Texas A&M, about how <laughs> I, was the, I was the ex-director of the CIA. We lied, we choked. We steal? <laughs> we taught entire training courses on it. So, but now we're supposed to believe this guy for some reason? For what reason? Unbelievable. You know, and, uh, so now you got Pompeo, all these asshats, John Bolton, um, Elliot Abrams talking about why we need to do this. Unbelievable. You know, Elliot Abrams is a war criminal. John Bolton's a war criminal from their uh, participation in, you know, covert operations in Central America. During the Reagan era, Bush era, and and those guys are the deep state. You know, these people are not elected, but they're setting policy. And not only are they setting policy, they're, you know, th this is the new world order. So, I mean, let's hear this again. This is unbelievable. Here he is saying it himself. Like, we, we, had, we had entire, we had entire training courses. Uh, what? I, I was the CIA director. We lied, we cheated, we steal, stole. It's like, we, we, had, we had entire, we had entire training courses. Uh, sure you did. You did. You're master of deception. An assassination? Unbelievable. So, <laughs> man. So, don't believe it. Don't believe it. Oh, here's another clip. <clears throat> well, I won't play the clip, but uh, 1988. A U.S. warship shot down 
an Iranian passenger plane with 290 people on it. So, there's another provocation. Now we've got them surrounded by like 46 military bases. So, I don't know. You tell me. You tell me, man. This has been Dave with And Another Thing with Dave. Peace out. That's it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of And Another Thing with Dave. And remember, if you're digging what I'm doing, picking up what I'm putting down, please spread it around with friends and on social media. Reviews on Spotify Podcasts and Apple Podcasts are greatly appreciated. All right. Until next time.